0: Good evening, everybody, and Happy New Year. Glad to see all of you here. And uh, this is our second Writers' Live program of 2013, so we're, we're glad to see you starting your year off um, in a good way here with us at the Pratt. Uh, I wanted to, before I introduce our speaker, I wanted to mention a couple of programs that are coming up in the next week. First of all, this Saturday at 2 o'clock, The actor Clayton Leboeuf, who uh, you probably know from The Wire and Homicide, is going to be here to present a film called The Man, which is um, a Rod Serling film from 1972 that probably most of you have not seen. And he'll be leading the discussion after the film. It's about the first black president stars James Earl Jones. Um, On Tuesday... Tuesday evening down in the main hall we'll be featuring um, some folk singers a, a duo from Helsinki, Finland and they're, um, they're going to be here with us so if you're interested in hearing some Finnish folk music we hope you'll uh, turn out for that and then on Wednesday, January 16th uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC will be here at 7pm upstairs in the auditorium and there are flyers for um, with information about all of these programs on the table there by the door. Excuse me. Uh, they down in the main hall, per se, so we just changed He's going to be... We're going to do it in the auditorium, okay, yes. Thanks. And also, um, in, in, if you were planning to come to our annual Martin Luther King program this Sunday, um, our guest speaker was supposed to be Congressman John Lewis, and that has been canceled and will be rescheduled uh, his, uh, Congressman Lewis's wife died on, last week, and uh, her funeral was on Monday, and so uh, obviously he's um, not, not doing any of these kinds of events. So we, we hope that we can invite him back uh, later in the year. All right, for tonight, it's my pleasure to welcome this evening's speaker, Professor and Legal Scholar Garrett Epps, the author of the new book, Wrong and Dangerous, Ten Right-Wing Myths About Our Constitution. The purpose of this book, and Professor Epps' words, and I quote, the far right, well-funded, loud, and unscrupulous, are trying to do to America's founding document what they have done to global warming and evolution, and that is wipe out the facts and substitute partisan myth. And I see that um, Professor Epps has passed out his list of the ten myths. And he he tackles these myths in this book and um, explains why they're wrong. This is a book not only for lawyers, it's also for the rest of us. Um, And in Professor Epps' words, uh, it is not aimed at converting the Bachmans and the Becks. Instead, it tries to be a toolbox for citizens who hear the nonsense being preached at them and suspect that there's something wrong about it. Garrett Epps joined the University of Baltimore um, School of Law in 2008 where he teaches constitutional law and creative writing. He's a former staff writer for the Washington Post and the author of numerous books and articles, and we're really delighted to have him here at the Pratt this evening to talk about this book.
1: Um, Thank you, Judy, for that nice introduction. Thanks to everybody for coming out on a cold Thursday um, to talk about this subject. Um, And I have... um, uh, an urgent message to begin with um, and I really do want to get this out um, and I, it's something I would like you to know about this book and something I'd like you to tell your friends, share with your family because um, I think it's important and, and that is that this book um, is really short um, <laughs> it's It's something you can read, you know, uh, it's not a tome you have to feel like you have to study, something you can read uh, in a few hours to get an overview of what's going on. And in fact, um, it's also really, or, or some of the time, it's pretty funny. So I had a friend who bought a copy and called me the next week and said, I took it on the plane to L.A. and I finished it before we landed and I was laughing so hard that the flight attendant thought I was sick. And I said, you know, you are the stuff that blurbs are made of. I said, that, that's uh, exactly what I would like people to know uh, about the book. And the book does uh, take a humorous approach uh, to some extent, um, because when you are confronted with something that is absurd, it is a mistake to take it too seriously, but it is dealing with a serious phenomenon, and it is one um, that I think all citizens ought to be interested in at this moment in history, because I believe we are in the middle of uh, a fairly significant constitutional crisis uh, in this country, one that has. really has, we've been dealing with it for the past 14 years. I would say that the real uh, start of this period of craziness um, was the, the Clinton impeachment. Uh, we've, we've been dealing with it in Bush versus Gore. We've dealt with it uh, in a lot of what went on in the George W. Bush administration. And we now are dealing with it uh, in quite serious and and threatening ways uh, over things like the dispute about the debt ceiling and the uh, threats that are being made by a minority in our Congress in essence to to, to wreck the country if they uh, don't get their way. Um, And the divide is really quite sharp intellectually. Uh, On the one side are... People and I think this is the majority uh, of Americans if they are, you know, pushed to it if they're if they're asked to to give an answer to the question. Uh, this group says, well, yes, we have a constitution. It's quite a good constitution. This constitution is a set of rules that we use to run our country. So we know how to pass laws. We know how to enforce laws. We know how to argue about political values without killing each other, uh, and that's what it is. That's what it was intended. Um, It contains also guarantees of individual rights that are really quite important. Um, The other side, which is a minority, I believe, but extremely well-funded and very determined, sees the Constitution as something quite different from a set of rules. In essence, they, they see it as, I, I like to liken it, I don't know if there's anybody here who collects butterflies or insects at all, uh, but if you're familiar with the concept of the killing jar, uh, you know, the jar that you lower over the insect, uh, and uh, which contains uh, poisonous gas and kills it so that you can preserve it and, and stick it on a card. Um, and their view is that this the Constitution is really the killing jar for American society, that, that it, it in essence, decides all political questions uh, in a way that there is no real uh, appeal to. Um, It decides questions like whether we can have a health insurance program, whether we can have social security, whether we can have an environmental protection agency. Um, The Constitution makes all the important political decisions. By a strange coincidence, they, they seem to match almost exactly the platform of the Republican Party. Uh, and neither Congress nor the voters can do anything about it. And I think it is hard for people who are not in this, in the trenches every day, to understand how extreme the positions being taken um, by this side are. And I'll give you one example that, you know, is really one of the more surreal moments I've lived through in the past year uh, that occurred during the Oral arguments in front of the United States Supreme Court on the Affordable Care Act, as you know the, the, the act was challenged by the state of Florida and also by a group called the National Federation of Independent Business, who said that congress didn 't have the power to enact uh, the the individual mandate program and and other parts of the uh, of the bill and one of their lawyers, a man named Michael Carvin, very prominent lawyer in Washington, D.C., very involved in conservative causes, he represented the National Federation of Independent Business. And he was arguing to the justices, in essence, that the government makes the point that 99% of people alive will at some time in their lives have to use the health care system. And if those people are are permitted not to pay, then um, you know, we end up with this enormous problem of uncompensated emergency care. Um, the National Federation of Independent Business took the position that Congress has no power to enact programs based on predictions about the future. Uh, so the fact that someone is healthy today, end of story. You can't say, well, the odds are 99% that you will be um, sick and will need the health care system Congress that's beyond Congress's power now there's if you happen to have read the Constitution I sure don't see that there but anyway that was his position and Justice Breyer interrupted him to ask and I love to listen to Judge Justice Breyer because he he's kind of the way he talks he's kind of a cross between Thurston Howell the third on Gilligan's Island and and (laughs) King Friday the 13th on uh, Mr. Rogers, and it's just uh, hilarious to listen to him, he, said, he says, Sir, Mr. Carvin, I have a question, uh, and perhaps you can uh, answer my question, and then I'll know the answer to my question, so here's my question. Um, and uh, he says, suppose there was a, a plague, a plague, an epidemic, and we knew for a fact it was going to kill 50% of the population. We didn't know which 50% it would be. Could Congress require people to get Vaccinated, and without pausing for a second, Mr. Carvin said, "No, they could not do that. That is beyond Congress's power. States could do it if they chose." Now we really have—we are down the rabbit hole at that point. But I think it it illustrates what the aim of this particular ideological crusade is, and that is to dismantle the apparatus that makes the United States a modern nation with a centralized economy and the ability to regulate such things as environmental damage, labor rights, consumer protection, worker safety, and so forth. And when I say that those are the target, I am not indulging in any sort of exaggeration. Um, They are trying to do this, as uh, Judy read one of my favorite passages from my book, uh, in, in the introduction, they are trying to do to it by, the, by this process of disinformation. Exactly what was done uh, to people, climate research. Simply scream loudly enough that things that are true are not true, and pretty soon, in this country, in public debate and in the media, they have to be treated, you know, uh, as if there was a, a question about it, as if there was a serious question about climate change. Um, And we see this now uh, attempts being done. Obviously, this has been done with Darwinian evolution to the point that we have, you know, uh, and and modern geology to the point we have Senator Rubio saying, I don't know how old the Earth is. That's, you know, that's not a question for me to figure out. It could be a few thousand, could be a few billion. I don't know. Um, uh, And they're now tackling human reproductive biology, as we learned in the last... Uh, election, you know, and, and I mean, there's a very, and, and you know, this, is, this, is, this Aiken thing did not come out of a, uh, a vacuum. There are people promulgating this view that there's no such thing as pregnancy that results from rape and therefore we don't need to provide exceptions in abortion bans for that. Uh, and they're basically making up these things that sound like science uh, to justify that. Um, I really expect at any moment to open the newspaper and see that there's now going to be a controversy about whether pi is equal to three. Um, And the reason is that there are some people who believe that it must be because uh, the first book of Kings, chapter 7, verse 23, describes Solomon's temple and it gives the measurements and it turns out that Solomon's temple's circumference was three times the diameter, and that must mean that pi actually equals three and that 3.14159 is a godless... Uh, and, and, you know, soon we'll be having sort of, you know, debate. Does pi equal three or not, you know, on, on the web page? Because if you say something, no matter how nuts, loudly enough, and if you have money behind you, eventually, unless people strike back pretty hard this will begin to seem to some people like the truth. Um, The Constitution just doesn't say most of the things that the right wing says it says. And when I say right wing, I really don't mean the people that you know you know, who maybe think that the commerce power, you know, doesn't extend to the, you know, the Violence Against Women Act goes too far, something like that. Things that reasonable people can debate about. Um, I am talking about uh, a group of people who frankly say that they believe everything the government has done since 1912 is unconstitutional. Social Security, Medicare, um, interstate highways... The EPA uh, hate crime laws virtually everything and these are people who are quite serious they they you know a generation ago they were crackpots now they are listened to in Congress um, and they are backed by money the same kind of money that backed the Tea Party movement uh, they are on the move we recently had an election in which you know, that sort of side, and, and Governor Romney was very influenced by this kind of rhetoric, that side was defeated, but that doesn't phase these people. Because, and they say this quite frankly, I'm not making a scurrilous accusation, they don't believe in democracy. They believe that the framers didn't want the people making decisions like this, and that's why they put all of these uh, supposed political values into the Constitution. <coughs> they may do a lot of damage. Uh, And I think my carve-in story gives you an example because it's stunning to me as someone who's been going to Supreme Court arguments for 20-some years. 20 years ago, that man would not have dared give that answer because someone would have said, you're crazy, get out of here. He felt perfectly safe giving the answer. And that kind of crazy libertarian rhetoric has influenced the court to the point that justices themselves were saying similar things. And of course the second most surreal moment in that argument came when the solicitor general was explaining to the court that we need to make sure that the uninsured are covered by insurance and that if they can afford to pay, they are paying for their insurance. Because when they get sick, we will take care of them. And if they haven't paid, they'll bankrupt the system. And he said, This is required because we wish to give them the care to which our social and ethical norms obligate us. And Justice Scalia interrupted him and said, Well, don't obligate yourself then. In essence, and he made this clear, uh, his comments went on. In essence, the Rand Paul, the Ron Paul, let him die in the parking lot, to him seemed to make perfect sense and possibly be required by the Constitution, and he is, uh, in name at least, a justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so this kind of rhetoric is really affecting the courts and has the capacity to do a lot of damage. Now, <clears throat> I got concerned about this a couple of years ago, and I'm going to tell you how the book came to be. Because it's kind of a fun story in a kind of scary, nauseating way. Uh, And that is, I got very concerned. I kept thinking, where is this stuff coming from? And I hear it, you know. I live in D.C. and people would, congressmen are saying it. I'd be like, where is this stuff coming from? And I discovered that there are these constitution schools that are being taught all over the country. Uh, You go for a weekend. um, And uh, teachers come out. Uh, from organizations and teach you what the Constitution means. And citizens, these, this is quite a big industry. Citizens are doing this all over the country every weekend. They pay anywhere from 5 to $50, depending on the organization sponsoring it. And I found out that the Republican Party of, a Republican Party group in Northern Virginia, was sponsoring one of these schools, uh, and I paid my $5, and I went out there, and I spent uh, what is probably certainly the longest day of my life Um, in a church basement, listening to and learning the essence of this constitutional theory. And I was prepared to disagree. I was prepared to be a little bit upset. But nothing, I thought, prepared me for what I learned about the Constitution. And here is what The Republican Party of of this Northern Virginia community was teaching and what is being taught all over the country every weekend and what is now beginning to be taught in public schools. The Constitution was written by God. Now, I don't mean that God inspired, you know, that that these were great men and God smiled on them. I mean, God wrote it. He gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai along with the Ten Commandments. Moses brought it down and used it to rule the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. They were ruled under the U.S. Constitution. Um, And then after the kingdom and the captivity, as we know, 10 tribes of of Israel were lost. Well, guess what? They are not lost at all. They actually went to England and became the Anglo-Saxons. So the the Anglo-Saxons of England are the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, and the Anglo-Saxons in their medieval kingdom were ruled by the U.S. Constitution. And if you want to know whether something's constitutional, just ask yourself if they had it in England in 450 A.D., and if the answer is no, they didn't have it. So they didn't have Social Security, so it's unconstitutional. And that the Founding Fathers... Wrote the, revived the constitution in order to restore the Saxon kingdom. Everything went went to hell when when the Normans invaded in 1066. You know, at this point, my brain is starting to you know compress, uh, you know, um, and I had said to myself, I'm not going to say anything. You know, I just hear to hear what these people think. Um, they also explained that uh, you know the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. Uh, that is perfectly legal for the states to have an established church. And not only that, that the First Amendment really doesn't even bar the federal government from endorsing what they called the religion of America. And the religion of America is Protestant Christianity. Um, We go through this stuff point by point. The income tax is unconstitutional. I mean, stuff that is really bat crazy, okay? Being taught systematically to, you know, very serious, earnest people who want to understand what's wrong with the country and what's going on. And they sat there paying very close attention. We had a little workbook we could, you know, like color and, and, you know, write things in the blanks and um, sat there for eight hours. Um, and I, I did look around, there were 55 or so people in this basement. So multiply that by five, six, uh, uh, five or six seminars a week. Um, fifty two weeks a year that's just that one group there are, there are dozens of these education groups out there um, i I looked on on the way out and I saw that one of these family groups had brought their kid. he looked like he was about ten, and I thought oh that's nice he's drawing. He was drawing because you know kids get bored so I thought i 'll take a look at what he's drawing and I saw he had he had written at the top of the uh, page, protect and defend. And then he had spent the afternoon drawing uh, a very realistic picture of an assault rifle. And so, you know, the air in these things... uh, The instructor kept telling, we have to be ready. The Second Amendment is to prepare us for when Obama brings the UN Blue Helmet troops in. We have to be ready to fight the Blue Helmet troops. Um, the, The atmosphere was so much crazier than I was really expecting. Um, and I just thought, people need to know this. So I wrote an article called Stealing the Constitution that was about this movement to try to convince people that the Constitution says things it doesn't say. Um, and I put at the end of it, this ran in The Nation in February of, uh, of uh, 2011, and I said, you know, look, we need to be doing this ourselves. We need to be, have our own church basements. You know, we can't let this go on and not be answered. And if people have a church baseman, they want me to come and speak, I'll try to get there. And I've gotten invitations, I've managed to go to speak at a a really a a large number of places, from New Jersey to Portland, Oregon, to Los Angeles, uh, to do things like this. Um, But I got the the, the request I really was most honored by was from the Democratic Caucus of the uh, Arizona House of Representatives. And Arizona, as you know, is to our time really what Mississippi was, uh, you know, back when I was a, a teenager. It's really a place where the oppressive forces are making their stand. Uh, and these minority, the Democratic minority in the legislature, are fighting against these harsh bills about immigration and so forth. And they said, we, we desperately need information about the Constitution. We're getting beat up every day by these people who say the Constitution is on their side. Can you please come and help us fight them. And so I thought, how, you know, how can I say no? right? Um, so I went. And in order to prepare, I thought, you know, these are busy people. They're, they're, they're going to have an hour in the middle of the legislative session. They're going to give me an hour to talk to them. I need to give them something they can take away. <clears throat> so I thought, rather than some you know, learned lecture, let me just give them some bullet points so they can, you know, they can pull them out you know, when they hear certain things. And that's where the idea of 10, the 10 uh, uh, myths came from. And a lot of people, when they see the book, they say, only 10? And I say, well, you know, actually, there's a lot more than 10, but you've got to start somewhere. And these are the ones that strike me as most harmful. So I came up with the 10 list, and I, I gave the talk to the, uh, to the Arizona uh, uh, Legislative Caucus, Uh, And then I came back and I began writing columns for The Atlantic about them. And uh, this was in the summer. This was while the debt crisis, the last debt crisis, was going on. And while the Tea Party was saying, you know, we're perfectly willing to destroy the global economy if that's what it takes to get our political aims. And we don't accept that we are obligated under the Constitution, under Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, we are obligated to honor the United States debt because we don't really recognize the 14th Amendment. That's one of the things that is part of their um, their beliefs, is that the 14th Amendment doesn't really count because it was illegitimately adopted. right? And of course, the 14th Amendment is the place in our Constitution, the first place that the idea of equality was ever written into our Constitution, and it's not surprising that they're hostile to this. Um, so I was doing the 10 Myths on the website. I got a lot of response, and then I thought, well, you know, this needs to be out there. Uh, And I turned it into this book, which I don't know if I mentioned this, but this book is really quite short, Um, really easy to read uh, and funny. Um, And it is not written for lawyers. It is written for people. And as, as Judy said in her introduction, it's not aimed at converting, right? If you give it to your Tea Party uncle, it probably won't convert him, although he'll have a great time getting really mad. But who it's really aimed at are the people who hear this stuff on the radio like my friends in Arizona and say, I'm hearing this stuff all the time. It doesn't sound right, but I have no answer. And this is supposed, this is here to get people started on finding answers for their own view of the Constitution that isn't really crazy. Um, So uh, I find that people have questions about this. One of the reasons I start out with giving out the top 10 is that people like to pick out their favorite and ask about it, and then we can kick it around. So I want to make sure that I leave plenty of time for questions. But I do want to talk tonight about two of the myths, one of which I think is the most important one, and that you really, if you really get your head around this one, you begin to see what's wrong with uh, the, the whole enterprise that we are being fed. Um, and the other one is one that I think has recently become quite important because of what happened in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, the first myth, which is myth number one in the book, uh, the headline is the right is originalist and everyone else is idiotic. Um, and the quote, idiotic, comes from Justice Scalia, who really you know, is a, a extraordinarily harsh, and sort of vulgar person talking about other people's ideas. And he basically has laid out his philosophy of so-called originalism and said, anyone who doesn't believe that is idiotic. Um, And because the basic claim is one side wants to follow the original intent or meaning of the Constitution. and the other side just wants to do whatever they want. They don't care about the Constitution. So if you're not on our side, you are a person who doesn't, who's really a traitor to the Constitution. And this is an idea actually that you can trace back in intellectual history to the birth of fundamentalism. It's an idea that comes into constitutional interpretation from fundamentalist um, hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, because the the fundamentalists in the early 20th century were reacting to what was called the higher criticism, and that was scientific scholars, mostly in Germany, but increasingly in England and and the United States, who were studying the Bible the way we study any other historical document. They were trying to figure out how did this get written, who wrote it, what were the circumstances under which it was written. They refused to approach the Bible as uh, you know, sort of a sober record of history. They said, you know, we don't. We're not saying that it, God didn't make the world in seven days, but maybe we should look at it and make sure. Um, and this was this produced a very sharp reaction, which we today call fundamentalism. Um, and the idea was, anyone who reads the Bible with this kind of view, this view that maybe not everything in it is true is not a Christian, is a traitor to the Bible. And that idea has neatly moved over to the Constitution, right? That if you don't believe in the so-called original intent, and, of course, original intent is is also a fundamentalist biblical term. If you don't believe in the original intent, then you believe in nothing. You're just someone who pretends to like the Constitution, and you want to do what you want to do. And the idea is sort of double rubbish, if you will. Uh, The first part of the rubbish is that the people making this claim, Justice Scalia and people like him, don't know what the original intent of the Constitution was. In fact, they've had to, over the years, keep changing their claim. First they said, yes, we're going to follow the original intent. But then people pointed out that you don't know what people intend, even when they're alive, and now they're dead. So they said, well, we didn't mean intent. You know, we meant the original understanding and then, you know, period, people engaged with this and said, well, the problem with that is the same as the problem with intent. You don't know what people understood and now they're dead. So they said, well, what we mean is the original public meaning, right? Which meant you look in a lot of dictionaries and you say, this must be what people uh, thought it meant. Or anyway, this is what I understand people would have thought it meant. And we even have a movement now that says we have to deal with the fact that a lot of people didn't read the Constitution or look it up in the dictionary, and so we have to come up with a way of thinking what those people would have thought if they'd had the education to read the Constitution and the dictionary. And it, it, it kind of is spinning into a, a kind of collapse, you know, like the, uh, like the uh, Ptolemaic system before, shortly before the Copernican Revolution. Um, but nonetheless, the claim is still made, and originalism is still and, and when I was at the uh, confirmation hearings for Justice Kagan, and you know when she said, "Sometimes we can't follow the original intent, because we don't know what it is," you know, Senator Cornyn and Senator Coburn, I thought, were going to have, you know, cardiac incidents, you know, at the very idea that there was any other way to read the Constitution uh, than that. And the fact of the matter is, we don't know. We don't have the tools to answer that question. We know one thing that the framers of the Constitution intended. We know one thing they intended. And because I'm a law professor, I can't resist doing this, but does anybody know what that would be? What do we know they intended? Be able to change things. Yes, but we think they intended that, although they made it awfully hard, so. Well, they the we think they intended to run a government, although some people were against it. Yeah. Yeah, although we, you know, that was kind of put in at the last minute. No monarch. Um, pretty much. The one thing we know they all intended, though, is to write the words that are on the page. <laughs> now that sounds, no, I mean, you know, that sounds flippant, right? It sounds like I'm reacting to your very intelligent comments with a kind of dismissive or reductive comment but it's not we start with the constitution and I infer that they intended us we the people to apply those words to our problems in the future I think that we can infer we know they intended to write the words we can infer they intended us to apply them And beyond that, we have to use all the tools of interpretation that Chief Justice John Marshall laid out for us to use in the early 19th century. Now the interesting thing about Chief Justice Marshall is he was actually a delegate to the Virginia ratifying convention. He wasn't at Philadelphia, but he was at the convention that ratified the Constitution uh, in Virginia. He qualifies as one of the founders but when he was on the court he never made any claim to knowledge of what we were thinking here's what we were thinking when we were, here's what you know i know people were thinking x james madison who had the only real complete set of notes refused to publish them in his lifetime because he said if i do people will use them instead of applying and interpreting the constitution themselves okay so uh, Chief Justice Marshall gave us a set of tools to apply the Constitution. They are common sense tools. Legal training helps, but is not required. You look at the text of the Constitution. You look at the structure of the government. Okay, and you know, for example, no monarch. That would be a structural point. It's pretty clear, right, when you read it. I mean, I suppose someone could come up with an argument that they really meant there to be a king. They just didn't mention it, but. It'd be kind of a tough sell, right? You look at the structure of the government. How is it supposed to work? You look at the political theory behind the American Revolution, behind uh, American life. You look at what works. And Chief Justice Marshall is is quite clear about that. We have to do what is practical. We apply the Constitution to practical facts. Um, There's a whole set of interpretive tools that we can use that don't depend on some kind of occult knowledge of the past. And the fact of the matter is that there really is no principled way, using the tools that are available to us and the sources that we have, there is no principled way to say, this is what the framers intended. This is what the words they wrote meant at that time. This is what the public understood. We can't go back and do that. What we can do is arrive at a meaning for our time, you know, trying to be faithful to the document uh, as a whole. But the originalists, particularly those on the court, do not like to admit that. And so they've invented what I call there's originalism, and actually, you know, as scholarship, by the way, I want to say this, originalism is really quite valuable. You go back and study what people were doing and saying and thinking in 1787. Or, or 1803 or whatever. And and it, it, it can enlighten us about the Constitution. It really always helps to know the situation that produced the Constitution. And I go to conferences on originalism and contribute to originalist journals and so forth in that regard. I, but we don't pretend that answers current legal questions. Okay. Um, but in order to answer current legal questions, because we can't it by any principled originalist means, the, uh, the, the right on the bench has come up with a bunch of what I call, quote, originalism. So there's originalism and there's originalism. Um, and I want to share some of those with you very quickly because you will start hearing them if you become aware. The first is what I call everybody knows originalism. And that is, well, it's not in the Constitution. It didn't have to be because everybody knows the framers thought it. And Judge Vincent, in the uh, district court opinion in the uh, health care case, says, "Well, everybody knows that, that uh, people in, uh, in, you know, in America in 1787 didn't like taxes, so it's clear they couldn't have a tax uh, to enforce uh, the health care." Well, you know it's who was it who said Run the government? It was over here, right? Yeah, they put a lot of power in the Constitution. I mean, there in the words. So, in order to say the government doesn't have, again, it says including the power to tax. So, in order to say that that doesn't really mean what it says, you have to say, well, everybody knew it didn't mean what it said, and that's it's illegitimate, it's bogus, it's phony. Um, there's what I call Da Vinci Code originalism, and this, of course, is the country that gave us the Da Vinci Code. I think it's a fascinating comment <clears throat> on the American character that you could say, here's the story of Jesus Christ. According to that story, he was a man born as the son of God who came to earth to save the world, was crucified, died, and was buried and rose again from the dead. And people are like, boring. And you say, oh, well, okay, let's tell it different. Here's a guy who was crucified and he didn't die and he came down off the cross, married Mary Magdalene, moved to France, and he fathered a dynasty of fairly mediocre medieval kings which has now completely disappeared. Awesome! Right? I mean, that, that's, that's nuts. Right? The real story is much more interesting than, than the, the Da Vinci Code story, but, but Americans are fascinated by this idea that of codes and that one thing means something else. right? So what you do with Da Vinci Code originalism is you say, oh, yes, the Constitution uses certain words, but they didn't mean what you think they mean. And this, this is quite serious. Um, we have a debate now about children born in this country, native-born American children whose parents are uh, Ill- illegal aliens, and there is a very powerful movement that wants to deny these children citizenship. Now, many of them would have no citizenship if that happens, because they're not necessarily citizens of the country their parents came from. They would make this status hereditary. Um, and the problem they have is that the 14th Amendment in its first sentence says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Well, it's not hard to apply that, right? Born, check. Subject to the jurisdiction, check. Uh, And I asked my friends in Arizona, I said... Do you suppose that if the child of an illegal alien is speeding 105 miles an hour in a Maricopa County school board zone and Sheriff Arpaio pulls him over, do you think he can say, Oh gosh, Sheriff, I'm not subject to your jurisdiction? No, he's going to jail, right? That's what subject to the jurisdiction means. Well, the people who want to strip citizenship from these Children, innocent children who didn't choose where to be born. They say, oh, it doesn't, when it says subject to the jurisdiction, that's a da Vinci code term. It really means this other term that we found by looking at bills that were passed at other times. And they have had remarkable success in obscuring plain words by saying, oh, they're, they're actually a da Vinci code. So you pay attention to that. Uh, one of my favorites is what I call voices in the head originalism. Uh, and that is... You know, that if the framers weren't clear about something or didn't say anything about something, you basically say, look, I knew the framers. I work with the framers. The framers were friends of mine. Um, believe me, this is what the framers thought. You know, I talked to them just last night. <laughs> um, and Justice Scalia is a, a great practitioner of this. Uh, and in, um, in Citizens United, there is a discussion about whether corporations are entitled to the full free speech rights that individuals have. And Justice Stevens, in his dissent, says, look, the framers of our Constitution, the framers of the First Amendment, really distrusted corporations. They didn't want to make the corporate form freely available for private use because they said it's dangerous. And Justice Scalia says, Justice Stevens says some nonsense about how the framers didn't like corporations. Of course they didn't then because corporations then were monopolies. But now that they're not monopolies anymore, the framers would have loved them. Except maybe John Jefferson. I don't know why he accepts Jefferson. I guess he had talked to Jefferson recently too, but it's just made up. You know, the original intent that I just decided on. Um, then there's what I call pay-no-attention-to-that-man-behind-the-curtain uh, originalism. And that is when you produce a quote from someone who's effect, who completely disagrees with the right-wing position. And they say, oh yeah, but he was an exception. Um, and strangely enough, the person they mostly do this with is James Madison, who is, you know, basically the father of religious freedom in this country. Who took a very strong position that um, that the, the the state should have nothing to do with endorsing or teaching or promoting religion. That that should be entirely left to the private conscience. And whenever people bring that up, because part of the project of the judicial right and the and the political right is to encourage tax funds to flow to um, to flow to pri- uh, religious institutions, uh, whenever you bring that up, they say, oh, yeah, but Marshall was an extremist. I mean, Madison was an extremist. And that, actually, that term was used by Justice Thomas about Madison. I thought, you know, I did not ever think I would live to see the day when Clarence Thomas could call James Madison an extremist. Uh, but that is pay no attention to the man behind the curtain originalism. Uh, And then uh, there's finally, if everything else fails, you fall back on what I call foresight originalism. If the founding fathers could see this, they would be really upset. It's like, uh, first of all, they can't, right? Dead. But beyond that, um, who cares, right? They didn't put in the Constitution, don't do anything we don't expect you to do. They said, here are the rules. Run the government, right? Run the government. Run the country. Form a more perfect union. And if we could bring them back here today and say to them, do you think the government could require private citizens to buy health insurance? They wouldn't say yes or no. They'd say, "What health and what? Health and what? They did not know what health insurance was. They didn't expect to know. They didn't think of themselves as profits. They wanted to set up a government and let the people run it. The second, which I'll talk about very briefly because I do want to have time for questions is also in the book, and that is the idea that the Second Amendment exists so that citizens can fight the government. And Ron Paul is a great promoter of that. And he says, we have the Second Amendment, and people who don't like the income tax have to decide whether to engage in civil disobedience. Now, by that he means shooting the tax collector. Okay, so that's not the usual. This is right around Dr. King's birthday. This is not the usual meaning of civil disobedience. But if you get into the gun world, you will find that they have now taken Dr. King and the civil rights movement and now claim it for themselves. We are just doing what Martin Luther King did. We are dissenting and our guns are tools of dissent. And you consider that Dr. King died from a bullet. This is so offensive that it almost defies words. And yet, the claim is made every day. The Second Amendment is a very difficult provision to understand. I frankly think it's a perfectly plausible reading to say it's only about the militia. The Supreme Court has held 5 to 4 that it protects a personal right to have a handgun in your home if you're law-abiding for protection. That's all. They didn't say it has, you have the right to carry your guns to Starbucks or anywhere else. They didn't say you have the right to a machine gun. All the claims that are made by, for the Second Amendment are being made that are, that are really coming straight out of downtown crazy town by people who keep, whenever you push them, they start talking about Hitler. And I have a quote here from Judge Alex Kaczynski, who is a very conservative judge on the Ninth Circuit, that exemplifies this kind of rhetoric uh, because he's dissenting from a decision in which the court held that a restriction on firearms was constitutional. And he says, all too many of the great tragedies of history, Stalin's atrocities, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Holocaust, to name but a few, were perpetrated by armed troops against unarmed populations. Many could have been avoided or mitigated had the perpetrators known their intended victims were equipped with a rifle and 20 bullets apiece as the Militia Act required here. Well, that's garbage. The history of these periods, you look back at the rise of Hitler. You look back at the rise of communism. You look back at what happened in Cambodia. These things didn't happen because nobody had guns. Hitler rose to power because not because the central government was t- uh, tyrannical but because it was too weak because private militias most prominently the Nazis were heavily armed because private violence destroyed the ability of the country to function socially and economically and I would like to say to these people whether they're judges or or you know crazy people you know with with armories in their homes. I would like to say to them, if you want to protect this country against tyranny, then put down your guns and get involved in public life. Step up and take your citizens' responsibilities. Learn what the Constitution really means. What leads to tyranny is authoritarian government, not lack of arms. And the, the attempt to make this country a heavily armed society, the attempt to put armed guards in every school, the attempt to 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 create a nation where from sea to shining sea people can carry concealed weapons anywhere they want, including in Virginia in church, is a direct attack on our ability to maintain a free self governing society. The two things cannot coexist. Jill Lapore, the American historian who also writes for the New Yorker, wrote a wonderful piece about gun culture last fall. And she makes this point In a pervasively armed society, there is no such thing as civilian life. Right? Civil society has disappeared. And, you know, in the wake of Newtown, I would like to say, how many of our children are we willing to sacrifice in order that people like Judge Kaczynski can feel that Hitler is not going to break into his house tomorrow and take him away? I'm not willing to sacrifice one child. I think that people who have these fears need to step up and get involved in our our society in ways that they're not and that using the Second Amendment as a, uh, 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 the idea that the Constitution, he calls it a doomsday machine within the Constitution, the idea that the framers of the Constitution built into it something to, that, that would destroy it, it belies anything we know about political theory and about those people. And you said, you know, the Constitution can be changed, right? They did put a mechanism for change in the Constitution including if we want to, we can write a new constitution using Article 5. They didn't put the Second Amendment in there so that people could shoot the tax collector. And if you want to talk about the original intent, when Washington was president, we had a revolt in Pennsylvania. And they did shoot the tax collector. They lynched a couple of them, tarred and feathered them, burned down the house of a federal official, Washington responded by leading the army himself. This is the only time in American history that a sitting president has been in command of the army, in the field. He marched the army into western Pennsylvania, arrested those people, and brought them back to Philadelphia with nooses around their necks. Now, being Washington, after he'd made his point, he pardoned them. But the idea of the Constitution was to create a government, to give it adequate power, to give the people the ability to control it, and to let it run. Not to let us kill each other. So with those two, I mean, I think the Second Amendment is very important right now. I'm gonna stop and see if people have questions about any of the, uh, any of the 10, or just wanna talk about it. Uh, I'd be, be very interested to hear what you think. Yes? Yeah. They they, they wanted to use the text of the Constitution, Uh and Madison didn't allow his notes. Mm -hmm. If if I remember correctly, there there are no notes of the Constitutional Convention uh, extant? No, no. no, There there are now. Those are Madison's notes. But he's the only one whose notes. Uh, He's the only complete set of notes. There are two or three of the other. The question is, you know, did Madison, uh, were there any notes of the Constitutional Convention extant? Um, and Madison kept a complete set of notes. They're a little difficult to figure out, and one of the things, it's like, I don't know if you, if you guys have ever been in a class, right, that lasted from May until September, but sometimes different sessions are boring, right? So Madison will write along, and he'll say, Mr. So-and-so said this, and Mr. So-and-so said that, and then he'll say, Mr. So-and-so spoke at great length. <laughs> and... Usually it's the more boring people, but we have no idea what they said. I mean, because he was keeping the notes for himself, and he didn't want them published in his lifetime because he didn't want people to, um, he didn't want people to, to use them to say, this is what we, we need to use these notes to interpret the Constitution. Interestingly enough, when they came out, it was a fascinating moment in American intellectual history. The nation was shocked to read his notes, and they were shocked because of the very frank discussion in those notes about the need to protect slavery in order to keep uh, the southern colonies in the new union. Um, And people who had had begun to perceive that slavery was was a, a terrible, destructive blot on the country, this is in the 1820s and 1830s, were shocked to see how cold-bloodedly the framers talked about it. Um, And it caused a great deal of discussion. But I don't think that's why Madison withheld them either. But he also thought people should be able to get up in in the convention and take positions that might be embarrassing to get out. And the convention was held in secret. They had guards at the windows to keep anything from leaking out, so precisely for that reason.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. How close would you how close would
1: you assimilate that to the the fights between the Federalists and the Jeffersonians? Um, that's a wonderful question. To what extent does Thank this you. current dispute over the Constitution track? the fight between uh, Federalists, and you say Federalists and Jeffersonians. You're talking about the early republic, not the actual fight on the ratification of the Constitution. Well, the Hamiltonians, you know, the Hamiltonian, the, the Federalist papers. Well, the Federalist, remember, was written by Madison, who was the leading Jeffersonian, and uh, and Hamilton, and Jay, who wasn't even at the convention. Um, and they're largely a kind of propaganda device to try to get the New York legislature to ratify the Con- New York Convention to ratify the Constitution. Um, but you have to make a distinction because the anti-federalists, the people who fought the ratification of the Constitution, um, a lot of their rhetoric does actually show up in sort of modern right-wing discourse today. Um, but that is not the aim of this movement. It is not really an anti-federalist movement. These were pe- the anti-federalists. Bless their hearts. They get a bad rap from history. These were people who wanted America to remain. A small country, they didn't want it to be a, become a great empire. They didn't want us to have possessions abroad. They didn't want us to have standing armies uh, or getting ga- engaged in the world of trade uh, you know, with, the, with the European powers. And probably their program was impracticable, but you can kind of understand they didn't want to repeat the history of Europe. And they used a lot of rhetoric about decentralization, distrust of central power, and so forth. That same rhetoric shows up in the right wing today. But pay attention to who's using it because these are not people who believe in local independent communities. These are the Koch brothers. These are large uh, economic and corporate interests who want a weak central government precisely so that they can run the economy, so that they can do things like mountaintop removal in Appalachia, Strip mining, pollution, they they intend and believe still in a unified global economy. They simply don't want there to be a self-governing republic on this continent that can sometimes say to them, no, we're not going to build your keystone pipeline. So they use anti-federalist rhetoric. There was an old saying in the uh, progressive era where they said, we must use Hamiltonian ends for Jeffersonian uh, Hamiltonian uh, means for Jeffersonian ends. Well, this is the reverse. These are people using Jeffersonian rhetoric for ends that would have made Hamilton blush. Yes, ma'am.
2: Thank you. Um, I need to comment on the present uh controversy over gun safety, which is what it is. Uh, I think it really is a battle for the future. I think the, just shoot, never mind the questions contingent, is afraid of that very diverse, multiracial, multiethnic future that the youngest generation promises to grow up. I think a lot of everyone's a picture of American society it depends on who you first remember as President of the United States. And my first was Lyndon Johnson. I just missed remembering JFK. I remember Bobby. But I did grow up as a little one, no matter how protected I was. Getting an idea, there was a lot of agitation for equal rights, and I've grown up with that as part of my heritage. Who are today's six- and seven-year-olds going to remember as president? A multi-ethnic African-American who grew up practically with a single parent. Now, however other efforts have been made to wipe out minority history and women's history, this one's going to be hard to remove, either unless you remove all the six- and seven-year-olds, so there aren't any, or by putting guns in the schools, the teachers are going to find it hard put to resist turning an effort at security into an effort at control. Well, let read let Animal Farm and read the Zimbardo Let experiment. me tackle
1: that, if you would, because I think you raise a very important point. Uh, about the multi-ethnic, the fear of the multi-ethnic future. And that point that, that America, the demographic change in this country, is seen as very threatening, it's not as unprecedented as we think. If you look back to the 19th century, there were these fears. But I think it explains why I expect our constitutional crisis to intensify. In a lot of political areas, the election of 2012 has settled the question, right? For example, immigration, right? We're not going to see the, uh, a major party take these kind of harsh immigration positions again. Demographically, you can't win an election in this country if you do that. Even the Republicans have learned that, okay? But on the constitutional level, there is a desperate attempt to write very conservative social and economic policy into the Constitution now because the people doing it realize that four years, eight years, in eight years, Texas will probably be a blue state. This is an extraordinary moment in American society. And so we are seeing an attempt to lock up everything they can and keep it away from politics before they, they completely lose control. And in that age, of the federal judiciary... Uh, is really seen as, you know, the the tip of the spear. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Republicans have managed to prevent President Obama during his entire first term from naming a single judge of the D.C. Circuit, which is the most important court in the country for assessing such things as environmental regulation because they want to stop the activist government agenda on constitutional grounds before it gets started. Um, And I think there is a panic element to it, also, um, by people who look around and see a president who is, uh, you know, African-American, see maybe a next president who's female. Um, They they don't understand the country. And, you know, Bill O'Reilly on election night says, this isn't traditional America anymore, right? And one of the refrains of the Tea Party was, I want my country back. You know, to which the answer is, no, you don't get it, because it ain't your country. It's all of our country, right? Yes, sir? I'm always uh, puzzled by the logic of the true Mm originalist. Because, I mean, it seems to me that a true originalist, uh, a true, somebody who really is a true originalist would have opposed all the constitutional amendments. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, would, uh, they would favor, you know, they'd be opposed to the Public Com- Accommodations Act. They would oppose, be opposed to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Mm. We'd still have slavery. We'd still have white males who own property voting. So how does a true originalist deal with that, with that, with the, with that kind of a contention? You must have talked to some of these folks and asked them that very question. The, what, did, what, they, what would Scalia say? I mean, it's not fair to ask you maybe what? Well, Scalia would say. would say those amendments are all about things that are in the past. I mean, that's what he says about the Civil Rights Act now. But would he have supported them? Or would Uh, he support them He says now he would have, you know, but, uh, you know, it's just like he says, he he said, why is it okay, the public accommodations you mentioned, Scalia discusses this, why is it okay to use the Commerce Clause to enforce desegregation of public accommodations, of of restaurants, hotels, hospitals? He says, it's because the whole country agreed in 1964. That racial discrimination was wrong. It's like, dude, I was there. <laughs> you know, you—the lady remembered, uh, vaguely remembered Kennedy. I worked the polls for Jack Kennedy. I was ten years old in Richmond, Virginia, and people would say, "Oh, ain't that cute? You working the polls? Get out of here! Get out of here before I slap you upside the head." Um, and and uh, uh, you know, people—the country wasn't. I mean, there was a huge part of the country, including significant. People in the Republican Party, including Robert Bork, including Barry Goldwater, who were completely opposed to the idea that the government could require uh, open public accommodations, but he says now you know there there's no controversy now. all that happened years ago. Um, now, when you get a little further from the center you will find people who really do take that position. That is, that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments aren't really legitimate. And Jill Lepore describes uh, being at dinner in the house of a local Tea Party leader in Connecticut, and he says they, they, instead of grace, they read a section of the Constitution before every meal. These kids, you know, it's like, you know, uh, Congress shall have the power to emit bills of credit. Um, but he said, he said he doesn't have them read any but the Constitution the first 10 Amendments because uh, he doesn't really like The other amendments. Uh, When I went to Constitution School, I was taught, for example, that the 16th Amendment was adopted by accident, Um, and the 17th Amendment was a mistake and is really unconstitutional. 16th Amendment is the income tax, right? 17th Amendment is popular election of senators. Um, There is now an attack going on by by very serious intellectual uh, people on the right uh, on Brown versus Board basically saying uh, that it was wrongly decided and should be reversed, that the states should have the power to have racial segregation if they want. And this is not by people with guns in the hollers. These are by people teaching on faculties. So, you know, those the, the people those amendments are not all that popular. And Glenn Beck deals with it by saying, well, the 14th Amendment was passed to deal with freed slaves. There are no freed slaves left, so we don't need to worry about it. So the
0: 27th
1: Amendment. 27th Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the 27th Amendment is which says that it, Congress can't raise its its salary unless it waits till after the next election. I don't think that does a whole lot of harm, but it was a very strange episode getting it into the amendment. Yeah, it was a kid, a kid at the University of Texas found the amendment floating around and wrote his senior thesis on how if the legislature has ratified it now, it could come into the Constitution. He didn't get a very good grade. Um, on that thesis, but then there was a scandal, and and people got really angry at the House, and so next thing you know, it's in the Constitution, even though most of the ratifications occurred in the early 19th century. It mean, was just crazy. Why? Well, why yeah. Now that that kid worked for a while for the state of Texas, but he now works for a Dillard's department store. So you know, the the uh, <laughs> the amendment didn't really didn't really put him where he would. Now I think we probably is it about time to break or yeah. Um, because I do want you to have a chance to buy this short, uh, funny book uh, if you want. And thank you for your attention. Thank you for coming out tonight.